Amen. Thanks, B.O. and the band. Reggie, uh, good morning, church. Glad you're here. It's always good to gather with you. And um, if I seem upset this morning, it's because I partly am. I am internally wrestling with some things. I, uh, uh, those of you that know, our campus has been around since 2013, and uh, this is the first year since 2013 that I have not been to student camp. Um, so I'm struggling. Uh, I love the new season of our church, and uh, Chris Rivera being here. We have an incredible student director, and him blazing a new trail and going to a new camp and all those kind of things. But I miss it. Uh, Brad Harris, one of our Men in our body and a father of five, uh, he's at camp and he FaceTimed me yesterday from camp and was showing me around and uh, it was great and it was painful at the same time. But uh, it was fun to be there, uh, to, to see them there. And I hear they're doing a lot of um, walking and uh, having a great time, ziplining and paintballing and water sliding and all the things. And uh, they're talking about um, spiritual rest um, which is ironic because they're at camp, and uh, there's not much physical rest that goes on at student camp. Uh, Steven's in the house. Steven's been there. Um, one of our students that's been through and graduated and all those kind of things. Um, but be praying for them. As you think about them, they come home uh, Tuesday, so be praying. Uh, they've got a couple more days to uh, gather together, to hear the Word, um, to be changed uh, by what God is doing. And I love camps. Uh, Some of you, part of your testimony might be that you went to a camp and God used it to change your heart, change your life. Um, There's just something special, um, not about camp, but about when we remove ourselves from our commitments, from our schedule, from all the busyness of life, and we set aside time just to worship the Lord a lot. Uh, That's what camp is. It's leaving your commitments. It's going somewhere else, new scenery, Worshiping God multiple times a day, surrounding yourselves with friends that point you to the gospel, um, having mentors lead you to the gospel, and all of the things. Um, And the the cool thing about that is you don't have to go to a camp to do those things. Um, You can do that in your own life here. Um, So in light of that, uh, let's pray for our students. Let's pray um, for the word today. Um, and oh yeah, we should read it first. So if you've got your Bible, Matthew chapter seven is where we're gonna be. Uh, we're gonna end the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so if you wanna turn there and if you will, don't mind standing um, as you turn there, that'd be great. Uh, the words will be on the screen as well. Um, we're gonna finish the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Uh, we're about 18 or 19 weeks in and uh, this has been a great series and uh, we are going to end it and uh, look at Jesus's last words on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I'm gonna read uh, Matthew chapter seven verses 24 through 29. It says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And then here's um, Matthew's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, his last two verses. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together and we'll dive into this text. Lord, Father, I lift up our students, um, our leaders, um, our staff and volunteers that are there. Um, at camp, God, I pray that you would just continue to pour out your grace on them as they surround 
um, around your word as they continue to, uh, to worship you and sing to you and hear the gospel. Um, God, that they discuss the things that they're hearing. Um, Father, I pray um, that you would move in the hearts of students, God, that this week, um, not because it's camp, but because the students have met you and encountered you through your word and through worship and through friends and leaders, um, God, that it would be a pivotal, um, life-changing moment for these students. God, to ground themselves deeper into your word, um, to live by it, to know you, to love you more through it. And uh, God, I pray for our time, that it would be just as true here, God, that we would ground ourselves in your word, that we would know you by it, that we would love you more because of it, and God, that we would see Christ in it. Um, so be with our students, be with us, in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> well, some of you know that I have a, uh, I have two brothers, actually, but I have an older brother, and uh, we're very close in age, uh, so if you have a, a sibling that's close in age to you, uh, my childhood was uh, one-on-one against my brother in the driveway, it was just constantly being competitive, but also at the same time constantly trying to differentiate myself from my brother. Um, it irritated me that every holiday, every Christmas, we got the same present, just two different colors, right? And I just wanted something else, like care enough to get me something else um, that I enjoy, all those kind of things. I was just constantly differentiating myself from my brother. We had the same sport interests, um, same friend groups, all the kind of things. So he's older than me. He gets to his senior year and he says, all right, I'm blazing the trail. I'm going to go to University of Memphis and I'm going to pursue ministry. And I was like, awesome. You've just determined what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to University of Tennessee at Chattanooga and uh, I'm going to pursue accounting of all things. Uh, yeah, it's okay to laugh. Uh, it's funny now. Um, it wasn't funny when I was failing accounting. Um, but I went to Chattanooga. Someone told me that accounting was math, and they lied to me and deceived me and uh, got some accountants in the room that chuckle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know the feeling, right? But um, anyways, I'm blazing my own trail, and I really believe that it was God's you know, sovereignty that I, he can use even our rebellion and our running. In fact, like the night before I was heading off to Chattanooga, my youth pastor and my youth leader were praying for me, and they prayed that I would not go to Chattanooga because I was running for ministry, which is exactly what I was doing. Uh, my dad's a pastor. I'd grown up in ministry, but God... Um, just like he chases after, not that he can't catch us or that he's slow, but he's in his grace, he lets us wander. And then in his grace, he runs after us in our rebellion. Just like Jonah, I'm in Chattanooga doing my own thing, you know, in accounting classes and uh, got involved in a Bible study. And it was the best thing for me. Um, that season of being alone, being away from Memphis helped me make my faith my own. Uh, for the first time ever, I had to go to a ministry and fill out the new person card uh, because my dad wasn't over the person that ran the ministry and wasn't their boss. Like my whole childhood was going to a ministry and someone was expecting me to be there and was like waiting for me to get there and those kind of things. So I was brand new um, and I fell in love with ministry all over again. And I got in a Bible study uh, with this group of college guys at a campus ministry at UT Chat. And um, it was incredible. Um, and all throughout the Bible study, um, we planned that we wanted to take a trip together. We wanted to do something together um, to kind of commemorate our time. Um, I had already told them by then that, hey, I'm going to finish out the year, but then transfer home and pursue ministry. And they were like, all right, we got to do something to kind of commemorate our year together. Um, so at UT Chattanooga, it's great. Um, outdoorsy, East Tennessee, it's amazing. Uh, you essentially go into the rec center and give them a $20 deposit. Steven, I don't know if it's changed since when I was in school. And then they open up the floodgates of all of their camping inventory and you just take whatever you want. And I'm, you know, not 
not the cheap stuff. I'm talking like tents, but you know, cots that go in the tents and the sleeping bags that keep you cold at like negative 40 and, you know, um, mattresses that you can put on the cots in your tents and climbing gear and rappelling gear and all the things, canoes. So we go in and we take it all, right? Here's $20. I want canoes. I want the whole thing. And our plan was, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Chattanooga, in the middle of the Tennessee River that flows right through downtown Chattanooga is McClellan Island. It's this bushy, nasty-looking island that's right under Veterans Bridge in Chattanooga. And our plan was, hey, we're going to get all of our stuff, and we're going to canoe out to um, Veterans or McClellan Island under Veterans Bridge, and we're going to set up camp. And uh, we picked our time. We picked our date. We parked at Coolidge Park across from the river. We loaded up our canoes. Uh, we dodged a couple of police officers that were at the park. And uh, we canoe out to this island. It's raining. We're feeling like the Lost Boys, just, you know, just yelling and screaming. And we get to the island, and there's this sign that says no trespassing, and everyone has signed it before us, you know. And we're signing the, the sign, and we're yelling and screaming. I mean, we're just, you know, college boys and running through the island and then it's still raining. So we set up camp under the bridge um, that runs right over the island and um, we're set up. We're there and, uh, you know, doing college things. Uh, we were so excited actually that we forgot uh, to bring food, which is a problem. So uh, we had a couple roommates of ours drive over Veterans Bridge and throw hot dogs out the side of their window and we caught them. Uh, so we cheated, but we ate. Uh, I don't know if we just thought we were going to catch our own food or whatnot. And there's a, there's a rhyme and a reason to the story, I promise. But the next morning, we get up and with a couple guys. And one of the guys, his name is Josh. He says, hey, I'm going to go canoe to the shore and go find us breakfast because we're not going to do the whole throw food over the bridge thing again. Um, and we thought he was joking. You know, 30 minutes go by and we're like, Josh, you know, funny guy. He went home and got in his bed or something. And about 30 minutes goes by and we see a rope fall from the top of, or I guess the catwalk underneath Veterans Bridge and it falls down right in front of us. Um, and we look up and there's Josh. And Josh had canoed to the side of the shore and gotten under the catwalk of the bridge. And I'm not endorsing any of this, by the way, but he drops a rope down to us. And then here comes Josh rappelling down from the bridge. And Josh had served at multiple camps on staff and stuff and was certified in repelling and all those kind of things. But he repels down, and uh, now we discover what we're going to do for the rest of the day. We're going to put on the harness and the gear, and we're going to ascend up this rope to the bridge, and we're going to repel down and all those kind of things. And I'm like, what are we doing? So Josh sits us down, and he gives us kind of the repelling talk. Um, in fact, most of our students today are going to get this talk uh, where somebody sits them down. You know, it's usually an, an Eagle Scout or someone, you know, with a long flow and muscles uh, with a really Southern name like Sawyer. And he sits you down and he starts telling you about the equipment and he pulls out the ropes and the carabiners and the harnesses. And he's like, you know, this equipment can hold up a Toyota Prius. Like, do you believe it? Right. And everyone's like, yes, we believe it. And meanwhile, the middle school boys are like, whatever, dude. Yeah, we believe it. It's fine. Like, let's just do this thing, you know, because there's girls around and they want to sound tough and all those kind of things. Yeah, I've repelled off of, you know, other bigger things and all those kind of things. Um, so he walks you through and, and hey, do you think this will hold you? Yes, we, we trust you. We believe it will. We trust the gear. We trust you and all those kind of things. And Josh starts to do that with us. And then we start to rappel up this rope, and which is hard work and not fun at all. And I guess the reward or the joy was you get to, you know, kind of float down and rappel. Uh, the climbing up is not enjoyable one bit. Um, but the hardest part of the whole thing is when you get to the top and now it's time to come down. 
Because you're standing on a bridge and you have to step out of the bridge and lean away from the bridge while you're holding on to the bridge and let go of the bridge. And trust that your harness and your gear and your rope is going to keep you from just falling down to your death, right? Um, and I've been through so many camps. If you've been to Go Ape, you know what I'm talking about, where you have to you know, step off into the zip line. And I don't know what it is, but every single time, it's usually always the middle school boys who get up there and they freeze. Every single time. It's the tough guys who are down there saying, yeah, come on, dude, like, we know, let's do this thing. They get up there and they freeze. And I don't know if it's because, you know, the middle school girls are up there and Sawyer's like lean back and they're just like, okay, and they just go or what. But every single time there's a middle school boy up there and he holds up the entire thing because he said he was gonna do it. He said he trusts the gear and all those kind of things. And, uh, you know, I confess, I held up our group for about 30 minutes. Um, but then I uh, was, you know, made fun of enough to go down. Um, so and I tell you all that, but here's, here's why I tell you the whole thing. Because you and I, we can say we believe something all we want, but your actions will show what you really believe. You can say you trust the gear, you can say it's gonna hold you up, you can say you're gonna do it, but your actions will show what you really believe. You act on your beliefs. And Jesus is getting at that very statement in these last few sentences of the Sermon on the Mount, that our actions will either confirm or betray and deny what we believe. We can say we believe these things all we want, but our actions will reveal what we actually believe and what we actually put our hope in and what we actually trust and where we actually find our security or our worth or our value. Does that make sense? We can say we believe this thing all we want, but Jesus is gonna say your actions will show what you believe. And he's been saying that for the last couple of verses. Jesus stops essentially giving instructions on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And about chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus stops giving us new instruction and starts giving us application. Like it's time for you to choose what you believe. It's time for you to decide. And he talks about how there's two roads. One's wide, one's easy. And then there's another road that's narrow and difficult. One leads to life and one leads to destruction, Right? And then he talks about how there's these two prophets and they're both saying good things. They're both saying right things. But what's the false prophet betrayed by? His fruit. That you can say you're an apple tree all day long, but when it's harvest season and an orange shows up, you're betrayed by your fruit, right? That these false prophets will one day be betrayed, not by their words, but by their actions because they will act on what they truly believe. And then the two believers who stand before Jesus one day and they're confessing the right confession and they're doing the, the Christian confession and the Christian works and one of them will get a depart from me, I never knew you and one of them will get a well done, good and faithful servant. So the, the question that Jesus is gonna give us and he's gonna move right into, we've got two houses. Look the same as we'll talk about. One's gonna crumble and one's gonna stand. And Jesus is getting us to a decision point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's walking us through his conclusion. So, in order to walk through this passage, usually, if you're a guest with us, what we usually do is we just walk through a verse at a time, 
and see how they build on each other and all those kind of things. For this morning, um, Jesus ends with a story, which as a preacher, I love that. I always try to end with some kind of story, um, some kind of example in scripture. And Jesus is painting for us a story. So we're supposed to look at the story as a whole and not just try to, you know, chop through the different phrases and those kind of things. So I wanna read just a few verses about the house one more time. And here's what I want you to do. As I read this, I want you to look for similarities in the story that Jesus is painting for us and look for differences in the story. Look for how the two men are similar and different. Look for how the two houses are similar or different. All of those kind of things. So let me read it for you one more time, and then we'll look at the story as a whole and look at the similarities and the differences so we can see um, what Jesus is communicating here. Um, It says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So did you see some similarities and some differences? You got two men, one's described as wise, one's described as foolish, building two houses, No difference in the houses as far as the appearance, except one was built on rock, one was built on sand, and then you end up with two different outcomes. And the difference is the wise man does the words of Jesus, both hear the words, foolish man does not. So what all does this mean? And the first thing I want us to see is that these both people, both build, all of us in here, whether you're a believer, unbeliever, religious, rebellious. We're all building our lives on something. We're all builders. Both of these people build something. And here's the thing. Both of the houses look the same. Jesus doesn't give us any difference in the houses. And this is the danger. And this has been Jesus's point the entire sermon. He has not been contrasting religious people and rebellious people. He's not contrasting, you know, pagans and Christians. The entire sermon, what has he been comparing and contrasting? Outward religion and performance versus inward genuine faith and repentance. That's what he's been contrasting. So the externals look the same, and it's been true all throughout the sermon. The two roads look the same, the two houses look the same, the two prophets look the same. All throughout the sermon, there's two ways to give, there's two ways to pray, there's two ways to serve, there's two ways to fast. You can choose between one of two masters. There's two ways to interpret the Bible and the law. There's two things to treasure. But all throughout the sermon, the things look the same. And I tell you that once again because we need to hear it one more time, but also because I don't want you to think I'm coming after you because I'm not coming after your externals and your actions and your behaviors. The point of this sermon this morning and the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount is that all of us would examine ourselves by God's word and look at the inward parts of us. Look at our motivations. Look at our affections. Look at the reasons and the motives why we do things. But the two roads look the same. Um, If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I would highly, highly encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress. It's by John Bunyan. It's an old book, and it's essentially an allegory about the Christian life. It's this story that depicts what the Christian life is like. So there's this man named Christian, and he meets a man named Evangelist, and Evangelist tells him how to get from the city of destruction that he was born in to the celestial city. 
And he says, you got to go by this narrow road. In the beginning of the narrow road, there's a gate. And at the gate, there's a cross. And at the cross, the burden of sin will be removed from your back. But then you've got a road to walk. And then um, Christian is talking to the evangelist. And he's like, how will I know which road I'm on? How will I know where the narrow road is? And the evangelist says, it's the road that's always difficult. It's always the harder way. That's how you know that all throughout life, there's gonna be this wide way and there's a narrow way that runs in the midst of the wide way right through it. And it's always the more difficult way, which is very true. That following Jesus is always going to be the narrow and the more difficult way. It is more difficult to have integrity and to be honest and to ask for forgiveness and to own up to your mistakes and to be spiritually disciplined and all of the things that the scripture calls us to, that's more difficult than you being your own Lord and your own God and cutting corners and you know lying and deceiving to get your own way. There's always gonna be a more difficult way. And following Jesus, I hate to tell you, is always going to be the more difficult way. A life of generosity and sacrifice and service is always going to be more difficult than a life of selflessness and glorifying your own self and your own reputation and your own name. <clears throat> Does that make sense? So the evangelist tells Christian, hey, this is how you're going to know you're on the narrow way. It's always gonna be the more difficult path to pursue responsibility for your own actions, to ask God for forgiveness, to have honest relationships, to work and strive for intimacy with God and with others. That's always going to be more difficult than just coasting and doing your own thing and being your own God and doing what you wanna do. But the two roads on the surface, they look the same, except one road leads to life and one road leads to destruction. The two prophets look the same, except one bore good fruit and one bore poisonous fruit. The two believers at the judgment look the same. They both had the Christian works and the Christian beliefs and the Christian confession, <clears throat> except one knew the Lord and one didn't. And today, the two houses look the same. They got the same roof, same shutters, same floor plan, same porch swing, all the things. They look the same. And the only difference was the foundation. And I would venture to say that the two houses, these two builders, were next door neighbors. A lot of times we read this story and you're like, there's one man way over here who was, you know, around all of this rock and he clearly knew to build his house on the rock. And then there was this man who went down to the sand and decided to build his house. And it looks a little more obvious to us, but I would venture to say, um, if you think about the climate of ancient Israel and the Sea of Galilee and sand everywhere, um, that these people were next door neighbors. Because in the summer months in Israel, the sand would get hard enough where you could build on it. And the wise builder, in fact, I think Jesus... Um, I'm not just making this up. I think Jesus hints at this and gives us a, a, another clue about this in Luke's description of this passage in Luke chapter six because he talks about um, the two builders and the wise builder dug down under the sand and built his house on the rock. So I think they were even at the same location, same neighbors, same floor plan. I'll read it to you so you don't have to take my word for it. Um, he says this, Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against the house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. 
So I think they're in the same location. And this is a parable. It's, this didn't actually happen. Jesus is telling this story. But you've got these two houses next to each other. One wise builder dug down under the sand and built a house on the solid rock. The other builder just built on the sand and the rain comes and starts washing the sand away and the house crumbles. One dug deep, one just built on the surface and settled for surface level building, surface level righteousness. And this is what Jesus has been communicating throughout the entire sermon. This was the scribes and the Pharisees. No genuine relationship with the Lord and just wanted to settle for outward performance, the externals to do the minimum amount required that other people would think they are righteous. And you and I need to hear that today. Is this where our heart is? Why are you here this morning? Why do you worship? Why do you sing? Why do you read the scriptures? Is it because you have a genuine love for the Lord or is it I'm doing the minimum amount required that other people, so that other people might think that I'm spiritual or religious or that I love Jesus? These are hard questions to wrestle with. And that's the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is I'm not after any of your behavior. That we all would look at the word of God and he would pierce our hearts. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing us, piercing the heart. That it does this. We've got to think about it. Why am I here? Why do we do this? Why do you go to church? Why do you put the fish on the back of your car if people still do that, right? And I'm not knocking any of those things. We're glad you're here. But we've all got to wrestle with our motives behind coming here and raising our hands and singing the songs and looking at the word. Is it out of a genuine love and response of what God has done? Or is it, I just want to do the minimum required so that other people think I'm religious and spiritual? Scribes and the Pharisees were doing the minimum amount required so that other people would be impressed with them. Same is true for us today. We've got to think about this. There's two ways to view ourselves, spiritually rich or spiritually poor. There's two ways to view God, two ways to view the law. This is all straight from the Sermon on the Mount. Two ways to give, two ways to pray, two ways to worship, two things we can treasure, two masters we can serve, and two ways that you and I can view our own sin. And they both, here's the danger, they both look the same on the outside. There could be two people in this room right now representing the two houses. And they both raised their hands during worship. They both dropped some money in the buckets. They both opened their Bibles. They both take notes. And one is on solid rock and one is on shaking sand. That's the danger. And I don't say this or preach this to scare you. We're gonna get clear and explicit gospel here at the end of this message. The solid rock that you can build your life on. But this is why Paul regularly told the Corinthians to test themselves to make sure that they were in the faith. That you and I need to have a humility and a brokenness that regularly looks at our heart's motivations. That doesn't just settle for the fact that we keep up with the externals, but we're constantly evaluating our own heart. Why do I give? Why do I serve? Why do I love? Why do I sing? That we would never get to a point where we've gotten so arrogant that we stand on our own works and our own abilities. Yeah, I've got that figured out. Yeah, that's, you know, Christianity 101. I'm graduated over here, right? But we would constantly look at ourselves. Paul told Timothy in Ephesus to watch your life and your doctrine closely. 
that it's not just that we know the facts, but we're constantly looking at our lives and evaluating our own motives. And they both look the same on the outside, the externals. Both had the same confession. Both had the same works. One got depart from me. One got welcome, good and faithful servant. And look at Jesus's rebuke to the scribes and the Pharisees who were all about performing and all about the good works and the externals. Um, I would encourage you on your own time um, to read through Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Matthew 23 is essentially the seven woes um, that Jesus gives to the scribes and the Pharisees for their outward religion that was you know, clean on the outside and dead on the inside. The whitewashed tombs passage that Jesus calls the Pharisees you know, you're a white, you're a clean tomb, right? You look great on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Is in Matthew chapter 23. But I wanna read to you, uh, I mean, these are harsh things too. I wanna read one of them to you. Um, and keep in mind, this is from the mouth of Jesus when he says this. Uh, Matthew 23, 13, he says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's from Jesus's mouth. This is what Jesus thinks of external phony religion with no affection in the heart, doing all the externals, but no genuine love and brokenness and repentance and gratitude and affection for Christ himself. Keeping up with the, the behaviors, but no inward affection for God. This is what Jesus has to say about religion. And this is the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the whole thing, he's not been saying, here's the pagan way, here's the Christian way. Right, here's the rebellious sinner and here's the believer. No, it's here's the religious way to do things and here's the genuine, heartfelt, repentant way to do things. Do you see the difference? And everything has to do not with what it looks like on the outside, but your motives and the reasons why you do things. He's contrasting Christianity and religion. Two people that sit in church, two people that lift their hands, two people that give, that take notes, that pray. And notice that both men in this story hear the words of God. Right? This isn't a doctrinal issue. This isn't a theology issue. That they both heard God's words. Both of them did. One obeyed and one disobeyed. But here, I want to be clear that hearing the word of God is not a bad thing, okay? Um, Jesus, you know, he didn't say one person heard the words and the other person didn't hear the words and you need to be like the one. No. That we all need to hear the word of God, right? Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That it's the reason that you and I are saved, that we're around the gospel. And Peter says um, in 1 Peter that we've been born again by the word. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And in verse 25, he says, this is the word, this is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the good news. So he says that you and I were born again, that we're saved by the word. Paul says faith comes by hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God. Peter in the next chapter will say, or in chapter four, he'll say, uh, no, it's actually chapter two. He'll say that we're born again by the word. And then in chapter two, he says that we grow by the word, that the word is the spiritual milk that we need to grow us in the faith. So we need the word of God. 
But the point is that these two men, they sat through the sermons, they had the right doctrine, they had the word memorized. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were teaching people the word. Their kids were in church. Both of these houses were made. The materials were orthodox doctrine, Bible studies, Christian service, worship services, you name it. They looked the same. And notice in the story, what revealed the foundation? What revealed the truth? It was the storm. The storm revealed the foundation. The storm came, the rain came, the wind blew. Your translation might say when the storm comes, when the storm came. Mine doesn't even give it a possibility. It just says the rain came, the winds blew, right? The suffering is going to happen in our lives, believer or unbeliever, that you and I, we live in the result of Genesis chapter three, that this world is broken, that you and I are broken. Our country is broken. All countries are broken. Systems are broken. Our relationships are broken because we're broken. The world is broken. Romans eight, that creation is even groaning and longing for the redemption, for God to come and redeem its creation because it's broken. That we live in this fallen, broken world and we are going to experience suffering. It doesn't say if, it doesn't say it might come, it says when. It just, mine just says it, it shows up. And I wanna be fair, um, in this story, Jesus mentions suffering and you might ask, okay, is the, is the storm that he's talking about, is it earthly suffering or is he talking about the storm of the judgment that's to come? And based on the context, I would argue that he's talking about the storm of the judgment that's coming one day. The previous passage, Jesus was talking about the final judgment where the two people before the Lord, and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? and Didn't we do that? And it's, he's talking about the judgment scene when you and I have to face Jesus one day. However, I would argue that the same principles still apply. And I would actually argue that it's God's kindness and his grace that he sends us storms in this life before we get to the storm of the judgment. But Jesus sends us these storms. And let me just say this. Nothing exposes a religious person more quickly than suffering. Religious people don't have a theology for suffering. Why? Because they work for God and they think that they've done enough. And they work for God and then God works on their behalf, right? Nothing exposes religious people more quickly than suffering because they think they're good and therefore God owes them. When a genuine believer faces suffering, we face it with this brokenness and this humility of God. All the blessings before this storm were freely given to me from you. I'm not entitled to those. I'm not entitled to this. God, you can give, you can take away. Blessed be your name. And I don't wanna make light of suffering. It's hard to get to a place where we say that in light of what we're going through. But a religious person, when they face suffering, it's, why would you do this to me, God? What about them over there? I'm good. I do all these things for you. I go to church, I give you an hour of my week. I thought you were supposed to help me out. I thought this thing was, I do some things for you and you do some things for me. This was the contract. This was the arrangement. I give you an hour of my week and you keep my business going and my kids healthy. That's religion. That's religion. Why would you do this to me, God? Why me? Look at all those sinners out there. Why could you send a storm in my life after all that I've done for you? 
Why not those terrible people over there? If the first thing that you and I think of when something bad happens in our lives is how good we are, then our hope is not in our Savior, it's in our performance, and it's in our religion. If the first thing that I think of when a storm comes my way is, God, how could you send something like that to someone like me, and I think of how good I am, my hope's not in his grace. It's in my own religion. It's in my own performance. We say things like, this isn't fair. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. Church, we do not want God to be fair with us. We don't. We are broken. We are sinners. We are rebels. We are wicked. We fall in love with lesser things all the time. We turn from the fountain of living water and we settle for broken cisterns that can't hold water all of the time. We say, hey, thanks, but no thanks, God. I'm gonna do my own thing. We do not want fair. We are not good people. And we don't want God to be fair towards us. In fact, heaven will be full of people who hit their knees and say, God, why in the world would you choose to be kind to a rebel like me? And on the flip side, hell will be full of people who demand God to be fair and they will be getting exactly what they asked for. God, give me what I deserve. Look at my life. Look at my works. Look at my resume. And God will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. The problem in that previous passage, if you weren't here last week, please go listen to the podcast, is that you've got people standing before the God of the universe talking about their own selves and their own works. How lost and how arrogant do you and I have to be to stand before the God of the universe and talk about our own resume, our own selves? God, look what I did. You need me on your team. Look at all my works. Jesus says, you don't know me, and I never knew you, if you think this was about your performance. The good news of the gospel is that you and I could never perform enough. We could never do enough, and that's grace. That's the gospel, is God moved in and chose to love and to save and to serve and to lay down his life for rebels and for sinners who constantly fail and never do good enough to meet his own standards. So God came down from heaven to this earth. It's not a ladder that you have to climb up to him. It's a cross where he came down and God met his own standard in your place and in my place. The standard had to be met. And God knew that we're lost and we're dead in our sin. We can't meet it. So he came down as our representative and met it for us. And then died for all the ways that you and I don't meet the standard. That's the gospel. That's grace. And let me say this, if we can't handle difficult earthly circumstances well, then we're not gonna handle the judgment very well either. That if we in our earthly storms get entitled, say, God, how could you do something so hard to a good old boy like me? I give you an hour of my week, I'm a good person, if we can't handle earthly storms well, then the judgment is going to be difficult for us. And I know that's tough, but I honestly do believe and I think that this is 
a means of God's grace. That before the greater storm comes, when God comes to judge sin forever, God sends us these lesser storms in our lives so that you and I can see that we can't stand our own works. We can't stand in our own foundation. In fact, Hebrews 12, God actually talks about this. C.S. Lewis calls pain God's megaphone to arouse the world, to get our attention. Hebrews 12 is all about how God disciplines us and sends storms in our lives because he loves us. And in Hebrews 12, this passage I'm about to read essentially says um, that God has taken us from Mount Sinai, this works-based, law-based thing, to Mount Zion, where he's done it. It's finished. He's obeyed all the works. And now, what does God do? He sends us storms. He shakes us so that the shakable things in our lives will fall away, will crumble. That in God's kindness, he'll shake you and send storms in your life to reveal the shakable things that you're standing on. If it's your money, if it's your income, if it's your own health, if it's your children, your job, your career, your own security, that God will shake us because he loves us to reveal the things in our lives that are shakable, to reveal these shaky, sandy foundations that we so often try to stand on. If it's your career, your income, your 401k, whatever it is, listen to this, Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made, earthly things in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That God in his kindness will shake us before the storm to come to show us the shaky foundation that you and I put our lives on all the time. And I praise God for that. Like I said, religious people don't have a theology for suffering. They think they've been good enough. They think they've earned God's blessing. So when God sends suffering, they go, whoa, 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 this isn't part of the deal. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. What's going on here? I'm a good person, I've done enough. And God and his goodness, we have to make room. We have to have as a church, as a people, as a family, as individuals, a theology that makes room for suffering in our lives. And I love this, that God and the gospel is so great and so sweet that God can even take our suffering and use it for a redemptive purpose. He can take your darkest moments and your darkest days and use those to reveal these false foundations that we've built our lives on and to bring us back to our knees and to bring us into his presence and to bring us in dependence on him. God can use your darkest moments to conform you to the image of his son and to make you more like Christ and to bring glory to himself and bring good to those here on earth. The gospel is so rich and is so amazing and is so sweet that God can even use our suffering for his glory and for our good. And it doesn't make the suffering any easier as we go through it, but I promise you, it will reveal the shaky foundations that we've built our life on. 
God shakes us to remove the shakable things. And all of us, I think I could venture to say, as I've done life with you and got to know you, we've all got parts of our lives that we wouldn't wish on anybody. Seasons that were so dark and so tough. I, hey, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But then there's a part of us that's grateful that we've walked through it and that we've been through it because God used it for his purposes to grow us, to mature us, to conform us to the image of Christ. And now we can, as 1 Corinthians says, we can comfort those with the comfort that we've received in walking through those things. Does that make sense? But the storm is what reveals the foundation. And storm will, storms will reveal religion very quickly. So what is the good foundation? We talked about it beginning. It's one who hears the words of God and does them. Now, I want to be clear. Does that mean that this is a works-based thing? That this is, yeah, it's grace, but you gotta work, and that way you'll be on the solid rock? No. Salvation is not based on your works. Zero works required. Jesus has paid it all, not some of it. Not 99% of it, and you gotta go add your 1% of works to confirm it. No, Jesus has paid for it all. In fact, Jesus is asked in John chapter six, what works are we supposed to do? And look at his response. John 6, 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work that we're called to do, to believe in him, to believe the gospel, to believe in who Jesus is and believe in what he's done. To obey his words is to believe the work. And if you think about Jesus's teachings, don't think about all the letters in the New Testament, the epistles and those kind of things. If you just look at the gospels, what was Jesus's teaching? It was who he is and what he's come to do. It was his person and his work. And Jesus says, believe these things. Acts 17, God commands all people everywhere to repent. To hear God's words and to do them is to believe the gospel and repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. No works required. Ephesians 2, if you don't have this verse highlighted, memorized, somewhere where you can see it regularly, this is gospel 101. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. But then look at verse 10. Paul starts talking about works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's the relationship between faith and works. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by faith in Christ and a free gift of God's grace that you can't work for. But when you are saved, God saves you for good works, to do good works, which God's prepared that when you are saved, you will do those things. Does that make sense? Works do not earn your faith or your salvation, but they prove that you've actually been changed at the heart level, right? <clears throat> our works don't earn our salvation, but they show 
and they prove <clears throat> that we have been saved. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter says that these people have purified their souls by their obedience to the gospel, meaning they believed it. And in chapter four, he says, judgment's coming for those that disobey the gospel. Not their works, but they didn't believe the gospel. And it makes sense, right? If, if we've truly been changed at the heart and we say Jesus is Lord of my life, then that means Jesus is Lord of all of my life. It makes zero sense to say Jesus is Lord of my life, but I'm Lord over my finances. And I'm Lord over my marriage. I'm Lord over my internet history. I'm Lord over my career, my family. It doesn't work that way. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live now, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Works don't save you, but our works are proof. They're the fruit of a heart that's changed and a life that's been saved. Does that make sense? You see the, the connection? 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. <clears throat> you and I, this is not about perfection either. It's about your direction. That you and I, if you've, your heart's been truly been saved by the grace of God, then our lives move in this direction towards love for Christ, obedience to his word. It doesn't mean you suddenly become perfect, but the scriptures talk about this all over the place. John 15, how do we know that the branch is actually attached to the vine? It will bear fruit. And apart from the vine, you can't bear fruit. Galatians 5, how do we know that the spirit of God is actually in something or in someone? They will produce the fruit of the spirit. These are the fruits, the things that happen in a life that has the, the spirit of God in it, that dwells in it. The presence of fruit doesn't make you saved. The presence of fruit shows that you have been saved and changed. You see the connection? You see the relationship? <clears throat> James talks about this. James 1, be doers of the word, not hearers. James 2 talks about this. Faith without works is dead. But do you see the connection? You do not have to work for salvation. But if your heart, as we began this sermon, if you truly believe in the grace of God, in the mercy of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself and that Jesus Christ has made a way through his life and through his sacrifice and through his bloodshed, if you truly believe that, your actions are, will show what you really believe. Both of the builders had the right facts, but one of them acted on the facts. One of them's life backed up that he believed what he heard from the Lord. And in the last few verses, and we'll respond. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And I mean, it's a cute verse at the end, but I don't know how I feel about it. I really don't. And I mean, I want to give these listeners the benefit of the doubt. You know, we've walked through this sermon in 
18 or 19 weeks. They heard it in about 15 minutes. You know, they didn't have time in the moment to stop and pick it apart like we have and those kind of things. But my prayer is not this. It's not verse 28 and 29 for us. Is that we would hear the sermon and we would just be impressed with Jesus's words, right? And it, that's appropriate. We should be astonished at Jesus's teachings, but it shouldn't stop there. My prayer is that we're just, we're not just astonished at his teachings, but we're in awe of who he is. We're in awe of his person. We're in awe of what he's done. I wish that Matthew recorded that they were astonished at his teachings and they all fell at his feet and repented and claimed him Lord of their life because that's the appropriate response. They had all the external signs, but they were not moved to faith and repentance. They had plenty of religion, but they had zero repentance. Don't just be astonished at his teaching. Be in awe of who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He's the judge. He's the Son of God. He is God. And the point of my sermon this morning, the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount, is what will define you as a genuine believer is not your religion. It's your repentance. The one thing that will distinguish the religious from the genuine believers is repentance. It's brokenness. It's being spiritually bankrupt. It's recognizing that you bring nothing to the table and you're repentant. You fall in love with God and his grace and you obey him out of response of what he's done. It's what's gonna define a believer and it's also what's gonna cause us as believers to live fruitful lives. Matthew 3, 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, right? This is how we live fruitful lives. Repent if you've never done it before and put your faith in Jesus and you wanna live a humble, fruitful life that obeys the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, keep on repenting. Man, how much fruitful would my life be if I woke up every morning and acknowledged my brokenness, acknowledged my inadequacies, acknowledged all the ways that my heart wanders and fall at the feet of Jesus. I would be so much more humble, so much more generous, so much more kind, but instead, what do I do? My default setting is to wake up and to think that I've earned this thing. And then I go around and expect other people to earn it too. If I earned it, they need to earn it. That's religion. It's building my house on my own works, on my own behavior, on my own performance. It is religion. So the application this morning is this. Everybody's building their life on something. Everybody this morning, whether you want to or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are building your house on a foundation. <clears throat> so the question is, is it your own works? Is it your own goodness? Is it being a good person? All of those are building a life on yourself. Or is everything that you do in this life building on the solid rock of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Theology is great, but right theology will not save you. In fact, the demons have sound theology. The demons have better theology than I do. Did not save. Facts about God are a great thing, but they're not enough. A fear and a respect for God's power 
won't save you. Is it a good thing? Yes. But the demons had that too. They had all the right theology and they feared the Lord. Then what's the real thing? What separates us from the demons, right? The real thing is a faith that says you're the treasure, you're the prize. How do you know you're saved? You love the Savior. What's different between us and the demons is love. It's affection for Christ. How do you know you're a Christian? You love Christ. You treasure Christ. You're not trying to perform for his hand. You're trying to live in response to his grace and seek his face. It's a faith that comes with empty hands and says, God, I just want you. That in our heart, we view everything as it, it pales in comparison to how much Jesus is worth to us. And we run to him because we love him. How do you know you're saved? Because you love the Savior. How do you know you're a Christian? Because you love Christ. I belong to him. I'm going where he goes. I'll follow where he leads. I'll obey what he commands me to do because I love him and I trust him. That's how you know. It's a life marked by repentance, not performance. And my hope during this series is that you have seen that there's lots of ways to perform. Jesus isn't after your performance. He wants your heart. He's after a broken and contrite heart. He will not despise. He's after your repentance. That's how you know. How are you made right with God? You don't do a thing at all. Jesus paid it all. But faith, faith alone saves you. But saving faith is never alone. That if Jesus has truly changed our heart, it will affect the way we live. Our actions will show what we really believe, a heart that's been changed. And I can't judge that in you. The goal is not to look around and look at people's externals because they're all the same. The goal is for you to examine your own heart, to ask the Lord to test you and try you, examine your heart, examine your mind and your motives. But my hope and my prayer is that all of us will be like so many other believers in the New Testament. You never read the New Testament. You don't find a single person who experiences the grace of God and then walks away the same as they were before. Mary Magdalene meets Jesus. He sends demons out of her and she spends the rest of her life up until Jesus' death, following him, loving him. A woman at the well who shows up in the middle of the day and she's ashamed of her sin and she's hiding. She sees Jesus who brings all of her sin to the surface and loves her anyways. And what does she do? She goes from ashamed and hiding to running through the middle of the town, proclaiming the gospel. Come and see this man who's told me all that I've ever done. Apostle Paul, killing believers, meets the grace of God. In his murder, Jesus chooses him and forgives him and loves him. And Paul dedicates the rest of his life to sharing the gospel all throughout Israel and Asia Minor and wherever he could to the point where he dies for his obedience to Christ. A new identity produces a new activity. If God has truly changed our hearts, he will change our behavior. He will change our actions. We don't perform, we don't act to try to get God to love us and to change us. We do it because he already has. And that's the gospel. 
If you came in here this morning and you were trying to perform that God might look at you and find you worthy, he already does in Christ. Fall at the feet of the cross, receive the grace, receive the mercy that you could never earn or deserve, and then receive this new identity as a son or a daughter of God and live in that new identity. Our identity determines our activity. Dancers dance, teachers teach. Children of God follow God and they love God and they obey God through his word. So church, let's be a people who live out what we believe. God has changed our hearts from the inside out and a change in heart will lead to a change in our lives and our behavior. This new identity will produce a new activity. Our lives change because our hearts been changed. Do not build your house on your own performance, on your own works, on your own goodness, because none of those things will stand. Build your house on the good news of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. And if you've never experienced that gospel, do not leave here without talking to me, without talking to one of our elders. We will give up our afternoon to sit down with you and share the gospel with you. It is that important to us. So let's respond. I'm gonna pray. I'll be down front if you wanna talk, if you need prayer. And then uh, Reggie and the team will lead us in a response. Um, let's lift our hands. Let's sing to God for what he's done. Not what we have to do to finish the work, but because it is finished. He's done it. We can rest in that. We can rejoice in that. And our lives are changed because of it. Lord, God, thank you for your grace. God, forgive me for all the ways that I think I need to add to your work or I need to do something to try to pay you back. God, that's just religion. Father, help me, help our church, help us to be a people. God, who build our lives on what you've done, not on what we can do, not on what we can offer you. God, Scripture says our righteousness is like filthy rags. My best day, my best moments are still contaminated with selfishness and sin but God, I'm grateful that you take my worship and you take my works and you've created me to do those things because you love me, because you have a plan for me. God, thanks for your mercy. Thanks for your grace. We lift our hands and we sing to you in a response to what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and respond as the team leads us.